Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. The co-host, of course, is Eric Eggers. Eric, how are you? I'm excellent, Peter. How are you? I am, I'm doing well, and I'm wondering, have you ever walked into a business or, or been in a situation where there's a family, and you're kind of wondering, who's actually running things here? No, I think anyone that sees my family at the pool on the weekends has that <laughs> thought and sometimes communicates it quite aggressively to us, actually. Like, like, it's not our job to watch your children. So fair enough. Well, today we're going to talk about something that's even more raucous than children at a pool. We're going to talk about Washington, D.C. and who's actually in charge. And our guest today is the distinguished fellow at GAI, Jason Chaffetz, a former member of Congress, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee. He has a book that came out called The Puppeteers, uh, The People Who Control the People Who Control America. And astonishingly, I mean, this is very, very hard to uh, accomplish. It debuted at number one on all of Amazon, all books, fiction, nonfiction, children's books. So uh, congratulations, Jason, and thanks for joining us here today. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. So we want to talk about this subject of who's actually running things in Washington. People obviously get very frustrated. They feel like they vote in people. New congressmen come in. Things don't really change. Have we reached the point where we don't actually have a representative government anymore? Well, the the concern is the thesis of the book and the reason I think it it's so illuminating is that Democrats made a very concerted effort over the last 15 years or so to put government on autopilot. The whole idea and the whole notion was that it would run itself regardless of elections. And they've gotten so cavalier now, they're actually putting that in print. In fact, one of the things in the book um, that we highlight is the Democratic uh, uh, State Treasurers Association. And it says, it doesn't matter who you elect in the White House. It doesn't matter who you elect in Congress. We control $2.5 trillion, and we're going to implement DEI and ESG and all these things that they could never pass legislatively. So it's not just the administrative bureaucratic 
uh, morass uh, that's there. But there are so many other outside influences. You follow the money, name the names, and you get there. No, I think it's an important book. And uh, for Schweitzer to give credit to somebody else's book sales is a really big deal. <laughs> and congratulations on your success. I'm in no way insecure in this conversation at all because the dozens of copies of my book. How did book, your book do? It's terrific. My, my, my grandmother's very proud. Uh, but, but I think one of the things that we've actually, in the last decade at the Government Accountability Institute, you know, we've paid attention to this evolution and growth of government. And I think one of the things that we do well, and you touch on this in the book, is we talk about, hey, hey, how come things never change? If everyone agrees that there's a problem, how come it doesn't get better? And so what we've tried to do is talk about, well, here's who makes money off the status quo. And I think what you've done is like, here's how it got that way. And here it's actually by design. It's not an accident. And one of the things that we've paid attention to here off and on is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And the role it plays, you know, it's really interesting. And actually, Seamus, who's been on our podcast before, has talked about the fact that the most regulated entities in the country are the ones with the least customer satisfaction. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this sort of plays a role. Talk talk about how what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's kind of creation means as it relates to, like, what your book says about where we are as a country. Well, this is the perfect illustration. And granted, it's in the courts because a lot of us think that it is unconstitutional how they set it up. But when Barack Obama took office and Democrats had the House and Senate and the presidency, this was a creation in part from Elizabeth Warren. And the whole idea is that they had this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, right? They always use the right buzzword. (laughs) We Um, need protection. going to allocate more money than the Securities and Exchange Commission. I mean, it was, they didn't even have a full budget. I actually questioned her in, when I was chairman of the Oversight Committee, or I, I wasn't even chairman then, I questioned her about this. They didn't even have a full budget. But what people need to understand is that the funding of this did not come through Congress. The appropriations and oversight and, and authorization was set up through the Federal Reserve. And the idea was they don't have to listen to a subpoena. They don't, they, you can't use the power of the purse on them. And that's what should scare everybody is it's, a, it's an entity of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, and there's no accountability because there's no you know budgetary strings that can be pulled, right? I mean, that's, yeah, they just print as much money as they want. So yeah. a, enormous problem, and so you have institutions like that. And one of the things you talk about in the book is that you know people see Congress go through the process of passing a budget. I'll put that in in quotation marks because sometimes they don't even pass a budget, but even when they do, a very small portion of the federal budget is actually effectively voted on by Congress. So I I think it's like 75%. And people know about Social Security and they know about some of the other programs. But there are other aspects of the federal budget as well that never really get voted on by our representatives. How much of a problem is that? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we went through the debt ceiling fight. Really, what they were arguing about was less than 10% of the overall expenditures. And they make a big deal and say, oh, we cut spending. No, you didn't. The, the whole of government went up. The bill that the taxpayers went up. It didn't go down. Um, it went up less than, but by a fraction of a fraction. And here's the problem. You're right. 75 plus percent now of the government is automatic programmatic spending. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security make up the bulk of that. But over the course of years, they have, when I say they, Congress has put in hundreds of other programs on autopilot, which means Congress never touches them. 
They just keep going. And then when you do look at that less than 10% of discretionary, number one is, is the Department of Defense. Number two is interest on the debt. And suddenly you're talking about just a couple little percentage points. And you wonder why we're approaching 36 trillion dollars in debt. But you also start to understand how is it that we get these bureaucrats doing things and implementing programs and control and who's really wanting, running Washington. And most lobbyists work on the administrative state. They don't they don't bother with going and trying to lobby members of Congress. So do you, would you then support ideas like what Rick Scott suggested, which would be a, an automatic sunsetting of some programs every five years? Is that the only way that everything you said, this sort of bureaucratic inertia that costs us all trillions of dollars would ever come to a halt? Because as you know, that was criticized and that was fear-mongered by saying, oh, that's how the Republicans want to end Social Security. That's how Republicans want to take away the key tenets of government that Americans rely on. I mean, is that is that the only solution or is there another idea? There, there are lots of ideas that I I was on the budget committee when Paul Ryan was chairman, and um, I supported lots of things. I think you could move to two-year budgets as opposed to a one-year annual type of budget because it's so it's $6 trillion. How do you do oversight and appropriations for that? Um, only one time since 1972 have we gone through the actual normal standard procedure. Um, and guess what? The one year that we did it, Bill Clinton was president, Newt Gingrich was speaker, and that's the one year that it actually balanced. So surprise, surprise. Um, I ultimately believe that Congress has shown over a couple hundred years they can't balance budgets. I'm in favor of balanced budget amendment, but one that has really teeth. Uh, Mark Levin talks about this a lot. And I think he's really got the right You've got to attach it to some other metrics like as a percentage of GDP and things like that. So you just don't have these massive tax increases. Um, I think Congress should pass and let the states decide, you know, can they ratify it in the states? If the states want the federal government to balance the budget, then, hey, by golly, let's do that. But right now, I think there's going to be a reckoning. And the problem is these $6 trillion enable to do things that we could never do and would never pass Congress, that the American people would never digest them and support them. Well, if you look at the cover of your book, you've got all sorts of familiar faces that are basically on puppet strings, right? You've got Nancy Pelosi, you've got Chuck Schumer. But some of the names in your book are not going to be known to people, but they have enormous power. And I think this is, you know, the, one of the crucial contributions you make with this book you talk about a guy named Brian Deese, um, kind of a revolving door case, goes into BlackRock, goes in and out of government. And you make the case, I think, very effectively that this is a guy that has tremendous power, uh, but he's not a household name. And he's part of this sort of apparatus of puppet masters that are really sort of guiding and shaping our national leaders. Tell our audience who Brian Deese is and how he has so much power and influence. You're right. He was uh, he's the BlackRock person and he worked for the Obama administration. Then he obviously had to come back out. But with the Biden, you know, he replaced Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow had decades of economic experience and and dealing with the economy. Um, but then Joe Biden put Brian Deese in charge of the Economic Council. Brian Deese is a climate activist and he's not bashful about it. I mean, they're very uh, aggressive there at BlackRock. And um, Larry Fink and what he's trying to do 
I mean, he is brazen about it. Even in the recent news, you know, after the book was finished, he still come out and talked about how how pervasive they have to be, and they're going to have to force things. To give you an idea, of the S&P 500 companies, BlackRock owns at least 5% of 98% of those companies. And so they use the leverage of those companies and proxy voting. So you, me, uh, you know, we we might have uh, a retirement fund or a 401k that is managed by a BlackRock or a Vanguard or somebody like this. Three of the companies control more than 75% of the money. So when they come in and say, well, you don't get to vote, we're going to use our proxy voting. Then they go in, they change the board of directors, they change the resolutions. And then your company that you're familiar with, or maybe you invested in is suddenly not trying to maximize your return on investment. They're trying to implement the Green New Deal. And that's what's happening in real time right now. You mentioned that. You mentioned that politics are trumping profits in that regard. And it, it becomes more important to execute an ideal versus return actual shareholder value. Is that what you mean? And do you mean it within the environmental realm specifically? You spend a lot of time talking about climate change and, and the way in which you know we're sort of being pushed that way. And I think you actually compare it to what's happening in China with the social credit system. What do you mean? Right. So a couple of different things happening there. It's the convergence of these ideas. And and really what they're trying to do is implement a social agenda. They need racism in order to implement their – and we talk about that in Puppeteers, about how they really need to, to do what the Department of Justice came out and said. You know, the Department of Justice came out and said that that white supremacy is the number one threat to the United States of America. Like, really? Really? I mean – if it's there and it's a problem, go after it. Is it really the number one thing in the in America? I mean, the CDC said it's a threat too, right? Trump's COVID in 2020. <laughs> so, um, but they need that as the precursor to justify all of these other things. They also started to change some of the vocabulary. You see this a lot where they change, for instance, it's not about return on investment and shareholders. It's about stakeholders. What is a stakeholder? And they they broaden the definition of stakeholders so that they can implement their ESG and DEI type of initiatives. Um, those types of things all come together. And you combine that with the state treasurers, as I talked about before, the Democrats, they control $2.5 trillion. And, and so... You do that with BlackRock and Vanguard, and suddenly you're down to a few people who control a major portion of our economy, and, and, and they move the meter as much as anybody. They are the puppeteers. Look at Alex Soros, just in the last few days came out, taking over for George Soros. They want to become more political, not less political, and they are totally underestimating or underreporting what they actually involve and engage and these people know how to make money on this stuff. Yeah, when you look at the cover of your book, you've got the uh, politicians, the well-known people that are the puppets, and then you've got the strings rising up. We're talking about the people that actually control the strings. And it seems to me a really important thread that you develop in your book is what the left does to sort of justify this encroachment, this power grab, this perpetual reinforcing state that they've developed. And it seems like a common element in all of it is fear. 
you know, you've got to you've got to raise the issue, the fact that that racism is everywhere. You know, you saw that with covid. I mean, people are going to drop dead on the streets. You see that with climate change. It's all predicated on scaring us so that we will give power effectively uh, to these elected and unelected leaders. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite stories I tell right in the first of the book, it's it's very brief. And it's a member of Congress who goes to meet with the cabinet secretary and the cabinet secretary is not there. And so the member of Congress gets all whipped up about it. He's going to leave. And then the senior staff says, calm down. It's a, it, you know, we're here. You're meeting with the right people. He said, I, and the member of Congress said, I'm not meeting with the B team. I wanted to meet with the cabinet secretary. And the senior staff says, you're right. You're meeting with the B team. We'd be here before you, we'd be here after you, and we'd be the ones to actually make the decisions. So you're meeting with the right people. And and this B team is running things, but they do it by scaring people. And and Peter and Eric, here's here's one of the key things you have to understand. This is what I th- I find almost anybody I took to talk to doesn't understand it. You have all of these regulatory agencies, and you have public companies that have to report if they're being investigated, but they will come in and negotiate a settlement before they sue them. And these settlements often come back and say, all right, we found you to do this. You're not, you're not saying you did anything wrong, but you're going to give 25 million. I'm making up some numbers on a hypothetical one. You're going to give $25 million to our department and agency for the victims, but you're going to give $50 million to this pre-approved list of non-government organizations and they make that donation directly. They say, hey, don't worry about it. It'll be a business expense. But it is their Democratic friends. It is their Democratic initiatives, whether they're out there to get that, get out the vote or to, to you know, be the not-for-profits. This is what they do to manipulate elections. This is what they do to, to reward their friends. And the amount of money that's going into these groups is by the hundreds of billions of dollars, and it never gets the light of day. And when when Donald Trump came in, he put out an executive order and he stopped it. Joe Biden on day one, executive order reinstituted that. They put it back in. We had hearings in the Judiciary Committee, but I'm telling you, this is they are judge, they are jury, they scare the living daylights, they hold them hostage, and there's hundreds of billions of dollars flowing that nobody gets exposure to. And these companies are helpless to defend themselves. Well, what do you mean? Because I know that you've looked at it. We've looked at this before. This happened after the the mortgage crisis. You had all the mortgage companies were sued by the Department of Justice. And they said, okay, you guys, and and we know there's just been a failure in the the mortgage thing. And and maybe part of the reason why the mortgage uh, industry collapsed is because we forced all these social values that weren't actually supported by the free market. Right. But as a result, but that's your fault. And so because you guys are racist and so you guys are racist. So now in addition to paying fines at DOJ, you now have to also contribute to essentially these social justice organizations that, as you said, also operate as get out the vote arms, the Democratic Party. So like that's one example. And that happened in the Obama administration after the mortgage crisis. Get just I guess just for our listeners that will look at your book, give a a few more specific examples of that, because it it is insane how that happened. And you're right. It happened in elections. That's I mean, elections now are not run by the Department of Elections. They're run by the nonprofits that partner with the local municipalities who like pay these people. It is it is crazy how transformative the last few years have been. But if you can just offer a couple more examples that I think people will be really 
excited to know. They, it happens in the financial services industry. It certainly happens with the oil and gas companies out there. We tell a story in the book about Redfin, which is a l- slightly different. It's got some, they're a group, uh, you know, real estate in the Pacific uh, Northwest. We tell the story about them. The part of the book, though, where I make a plea is that we have to have exposure. Again, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will not release any of this information because they're run through the through the Federal Reserve. Congress just kind of sits there and takes it. And so they, they just don't get answers out of them. But at the Securities and Exchange Commission, I mean, you just go the, the EPA, you just go right on down the list. These people will not disclose it. And what they'll say is that settlement is between that company and that um, a non-government organization. Those monies don't float through Congress. Therefore, Congress, you don't get to see it. Well, you mentioned that uh, Donald Trump put a stop to it and then the Biden administration came back in and reinstituted it. Um, is it is it fair to view what's happened to President Trump and the way the Department of Justice is, you know, he continues to, rec- to be prosecuted literally and figuratively uh, in many different courts and in many different realms? Is it is it fair to view what's happening to Donald Trump right now through that lens, through like he went after the administrative state? Some would call it the swamp. Some would call it the deep state. Uh, is this part of. I mean, is it fair to look at it like this is them fighting back? I, I I think it's a logical, you know, A plus B equals C. It's just, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump knows a heck of a lot more about how the system works and where where things are. Um, I don't think he had the best hiring practices in some of these people, <laughs> I, you know, but but I think he does now. I think he's probably much more apt to go out and clear out all the political appointees. Um, and, and, you know, the Department of Justice has got to be the number one place where we have to make some changes. We just have to. So uh, there's a great paragraph in your book, um, and I'm going to read it um, and get your reaction and maybe you can expand on it. Because something we get a lot of times from people is nobody ever goes to jail. There's never justice. There's, you know, and and they kind of want to throw their hands up. And you kind of have a rallying call. You say, given the Democrats' overwhelming dominance, so many of so many American institutions, it's easy to feel like the Davids of the right will never defeat the Goliaths of the left. The task before us is not a simple one, but it's also not an impossible one. There are Davids all over America whose slingshot aim true. There is much we can learn from them. So what can we learn from them? And do you feel like we may be turning the corner, whether it's, you know, Hunter Biden, maybe it's some of these other investigations. Do you feel like we're starting to turn the corner? Why do you have that optimism? I, I, I think when I go out and talk to people, so many people are frustrated because they don't just want to have the illumination of the problem. They want solutions on how to solve it. And the, the argument that I make in the Puppeteers book is that a lot of this is going to come from the states where they have an active treasurer, when they have an active uh, uh, an attorney, uh, attorney general, where they have a governor who actually goes out and gets things done. And that the, the book kind of concludes, not to spoil it too much, but I look at Governor Yunkin and what he did right out of the bat. You know, he took diversity, equity and inclusion and he changed the name of it. He kept it. He hired a new person, and it's now diversity, opportunity, and inclusion. 
And that made it very difficult for them to say, wait, um, opportunity is far worse than equity, you know, and, 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 but it, but it really did. And he, he started to talk about pro-life, like the opportunity, we're not going to take away the opportunity for somebody who is newly born. We're not going to take away the opportunities from, and so he's really just kind of flipped it on its head and they're, the Democrats are going nuts, but they don't know how to defend it. They don't know how to argue it. And it's a better way of doing it. And the thing that probably surprised me as much as anything in the book was how powerful um, these state treasurers can be. I mean, most people listening to this, they can't tell you who their state treasurer (laughs) is or their chief financial officer, Um, but they control a lot of money. And um, what the Democrats were doing in order to manipulate things and put in place these puppeteers, wow, there's a... Look at where the Democrats put their money. That's where they put their money. District attorneys, they put it into the state treasurer's races. They put it in the AG races. There's a reason why. Well, and this kind of dovetails with what you said earlier, which we have to remind people that lobbyists, as you pointed out, lobbyists don't go to Congress that much anymore. They do a little bit. But the bulk of their activity is with the administrative state. And it's the same thing in these other areas. Why focus on a state legislature to try to change the criminal code? Just elect prosecutors that will do what you want them to do and, and, and not prosecute cases. So... So you have some grounds for optimism. Glenn Youngkin is an example of that. Um, where do you think this battle is going to go? I mean, part of the genius of the federal system, of course, is that the states can challenge these issues. Do you think the courts are going to, you know, we've got a lot of great judges out there. Do you think the courts are another avenue where, where you know, some of these uh, issues can be declared unconstitutional and effectively done away with? Or are we in a situation where kind of like Youngkin – Rather than eliminating certain offices, we just need to kind of steer them in the direction we want them to go. My biggest concern, quite frankly, Peter, is uh, Congress. I I feel like they fight all the wrong battles and they fight them over silly stuff. And they don't. It takes time to get educated. Look, I was in Congress eight and a half years, chairman of the Oversight Committee, and then I stepped away from it a little while. And I feel like now I know more about it than ever. And it's great to have fresh new blood. I I agree that in term limits, but there should also be term limits on the bureaucracy (laughs) and on the administrative state, you know? And so Congress has got to get its act together and get back to so-called regular order with striking amendments and everything else. I, I want a president of the United States who takes control of the Department of Justice and says, they're not hands off. Who who said that the Department of Justice is its own entity? I think I heard Ron DeSantis talking about the idea, like I'm not letting go. That's my job, and, and we don't. It's rudderless right now. And Ag Garland is out there by himself and really not answering questions. That drives me nuts. So, and then Congress has got to get a grip on the ninety plus percent of the budget that they never touch because. They're just, they keep going on autopilot and something has to change there if we're actually going to solve it. Well, we've been talking to Jason Chaffetz, our distinguished fellow at GAI, about his new terrific book, The Puppeteers. I highly recommend it. There are a lot of books out there, as you know, that uh, are, are, are long on on verbiage. Uh, they're long on opinion. Uh, this is really fact and research driven, and it's a terrific read. Can I highly I- recommend it. 
can I, can I just mention one other thing? GAI was so good in helping us with some of the key research in here. I, I'm telling you, the Government Accountability Institute, their ability to dive deep on an issue, we got into the to the depths of, we didn't even talk today about education, Randy Weingarten, um, uh, the teachers union, you know, she has something like $300 million at her disposal. And when you read through those chapters about Randy Weingarten and the teachers union and community schools and, and what they're trying to do and how they become this political organization, uh, you know, that wouldn't have happened without some good research from GAI. And, and I think people will be like, oh my gosh, it, it, we better start focusing on what are called community schools because it sounds like a cute buzzword. Um, but it, Gavin Newsom has put tens of millions of dollars behind this. And at, that is the next wave that people don't even see coming. Well, I do think if there's one reason for optimism, uh, it's, it's, it is schools. Because if you look at the biggest change I think has happened in the last few years during COVID, people started paying more attention. Like, wait a minute, the, are, my kids not, might not be able to yeah. go to school. So they started engaging more and then wait you're teaching this in my kid's school. And that's one of the reasons why you now are seeing states like Florida, states like Virginia and elsewhere. I mean, they're doing something about it and that you've seen people lose their jobs. You've seen people elected to new jobs because of the awareness. And so what you're doing, I think you're doing two things. You're raising awareness, not just about community schools, but about this administrative state. You know, Peter Schweitz and I differ uh, because he, every time he starts a book, he like always likes to end it with uh, a solutions chapter. And then anytime I give a speech, people are like, well, what should we do about it? And I like the joke, look guys, there's, like I write books about problems. There's there's not a lot of money in the solutions business, but <laughs> but the success of your book suggests otherwise. So congratulations on it being so well done. And I do think that, but I think it's twofold. Like you propose solutions, but it's got to start by just exposing the problems by saying, no, here are the people who make the choice. BlackRock, the stat you mentioned about 5% of 95% of those companies. And so like if they want to make something happen, they're going to make it happen. The fact that the B team will be here and continue to be here, you got to let people know. And then so you have a leader that steps in and does something about it. And I think this book's an important, an important part of the solution, actually. So congratulations. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jason, for joining us. Uh, I commend everybody to pick up a copy of the book. You can find it on Amazon, where it has been number one in all of books, so it's flying off the shelves. Uh, and Jason, thanks for joining us. Uh, for our audience, we always appreciate you tuning in and listening. You can find this podcast and other information at thedrilldown.com. You can also find the podcast wherever fine podcasts are available. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time.